proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. I'm your host, Aaron Carr, and I'm also the pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come and share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have pastor, professor, and author, all three, Mark Garcia. Mark, how you doing? Doing very well. Thanks for having me. Mark, you are the lead pastor of Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, as well as the author of Life in Christ, Union with Christ, and Twofold Grace. Could you just give us a little bit more background of who you are and uh, what you've been doing? I'd be glad to. Uh, thanks again for having me. I'm married with four children and two dogs. Um, the dogs are always more trouble than the children, um, and I am uh, serving as the pastor of Emmanuel uh, on the uh, west side of Pittsburgh in a town called Coriopolis. Um, if the calendar is right, I'm entering into my ninth year, or just about, as pastor of that church, which is amazing to think about it, um, and during that time I've also been teaching as an adjunct uh, regularly for Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh and for Westminster Theological Seminary at their London Extension, um, and teaching a few other places and doing a few other things. I'm also the president and uh, a lead lecturer for Greystone Theological Institute, also based in Coriopolis, but doing work in a few different places. Awesome. Thank you very much. We really wanted to bring you on to the podcast to talk about uh, the pastor as scholar, and I couldn't think of a better guy to bring on and talk about this with, as that you are both a pastor and a scholar. But before we dive into that, I just want to talk a little bit about your background and how you became confessional. You mind sharing that with us? Well, I can think of a lot of better examples of a pastor who is a scholar, but I'll, um, I appreciate the invitation anyway. Um, how I became confessional? Well... Um, ironically, perhaps, it seems to me that uh, any professing Christian is confessional in one way or another, whether they know it or not. Uh, they're buying into um, a creed-like uh, summary or snapshot of the God that they are confessing, the gospel that they are believing. Uh, but I know what you mean by that. Um, it wasn't until about halfway through my college years, I suppose, um, when I uh, moved more and more fully into the Reformed tradition. And part of that movement included reading uh, rather widely um, in Reformed theology, especially the writings of people who were associated either with the start of the Reformation, so we're thinking big names like Calvin and Luther and, and others, um, but also uh, some significant uh, churchmen and theologians uh, connected with uh, Old Princeton and the founding of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, uh, and some others as well. Um, and before very long, you discover that uh, thinking carefully uh, and trying to serve faithfully in a Reform context about Reform theology and about um, the witness of Scripture to Christ as a churchly activity uh, it involves invariably a confessional context of one kind or another for doing so. Certainly the Reformed tradition has always believed it's important uh, to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments, to uh, to serve and to be uh, the church in a confessional environment. And so I guess growing into Reformed theology meant at the same time growing into Reformed confessionalism, at least of one kind or another. Very cool. As you kind of, um, I know, I know Mark personally, just for the hearer out there, we went to Bible college back in the day. A thousand years ago, I it, think, yeah. It was nearly a thousand years ago. Gray hair to prove it. And some <clears> well, you have the gray well. hair. I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> as I as I have my own journey into confessionalism and had to wrestle with the term subscription, uh-huh. how did you wrestle with that, and where did you end up landing in your understanding of subscription? Well, uh, of course, this has been a lively and sometimes heated discussion and debate for many years um, within some pockets of uh, Reformed and Presbyterian churches more than others, to be sure. I'm not terribly thrilled, frankly, with any of the uh, terms on hand for the best option. I can certainly appreciate the concerns uh, at work in those who argue for full subscription. Um, I also certainly appreciate the concerns at work in the system subscription idea. Uh, Trying to do full, unmitigated justice to what the Westminster Confession, for instance, says itself about the status of Scripture in relationship to the church and the church's confessions uh, leads me to think you have to do something like approximate system subscription of one sort or another, and yet not in some kind of weakened and attenuated sense where the confession ultimately doesn't function very much. So we are in a difficult spot, exactly how to articulate uh, what confessionalism needs to look like And I think this is uh, why it's a good thing that it's not something that we decide as individuals, but instead is something the church as the church, and so denomination by denomination at least, um, decides together what what that means for them and what it will mean for those who serve within those denominational bounds. I think there's wisdom and frankly um, a blessing in the fact that the church decides such things as the church rather than individuals doing so. If I have any real concern on this front, it's maybe in a slightly different direction, Um, and that's because uh, the Catholicity of the Westminster Assembly and of its documents uh, has become more and more precious to me. And if I have a concern, it's it's actually more along the lines of uh, uses of uh, the Westminster Standards um, that apply them in a way narrower than the, than the confession and catechisms are, in fact. Um, and to, to do so without alerting the audience to the fact that that's what's happening. And I think the more uh, we have outstanding research being done, and there are good examples of it out there, uh, of uh, the Westminster Assembly itself, uh, those who were instrumental in its, um, its output in the confession and catechisms, I think the more uh, nuanced and the more humble and uh, the more careful uh, we uh, should be about um, jumping to conclusions about our own particular stance on something necessarily being what the Westminster Assembly had in mind and what their documents require. So uh, along those lines, that's that's a confessionalism uh, question and a subscription, subscription question to some extent, but a lot of it has to do with the Catholicity of the Assembly itself. Two things. First, when you use the word Catholicity, yeah. uh, we know that you mean um, universal church, but for our listeners who are maybe newer to confessions in the language, um, just want to just kind of point that out. The second thing is, it sounds a lot like you're agreeing with Samuel Miller, who talked about the fact that the um, purpose of the Westminster Divines, when they came up with the confession of faith, was not to be exclusive, but to be inclusive. And that in their hope to to draw up these boundaries, if you would, that the goal was not to necessarily um, make themselves so distinct that no one else could fit with in their their cup or their saucer. Is that fair? Very fair. In fact, one of the remarkable uh, things about the documents we we now have access to um, from the Westminster Assembly uh, is that there is a very clear concern, <clears throat> a very clear concern to uh, to maximize in a visible way, in every way possible. Uh, their agreement with the Continental Brethren, uh, who saw some things differently from uh, those uh, in the United Kingdom. So it's it's interesting that that dynamic played a significant role um, in the final form of what we have as the Confession and Catechisms and the speeches on the floor at the Assembly. Um, they make free and um, productive use of writings from the Continental Brethren, but also from those outside the what we would call the Westminster Confessional tradition. 
Um, they know uh, they know those sources. They know those texts. They know research that was current to them, work that was being done then. They know it. They know it well. They use it creatively and productively, and they know the tradition. And what I mean by Catholicity is not only universal as a fact. Um, I'm most interested in Catholicity as a mode, <clears throat> as a mode of theological work, as a mode of pastoral labor, so that it's not only that we, we affirm the fact of the church's width and breadth in history um, and universality and such, but that we, we do our theological and pastoral work as though we believe it. And that means very much like the Westminster Assembly, in fact, but far from unique to them, um, making sympathetic productive use of the texts of the tradition that belong to the church. They are ours. They belong to our tradition. We belong to it. Uh, and doing so without pause and hesitation, but uh, as part of our own legacy and heritage and as theologically fruitful, uh, promising um, resources uh, for now, not just back then. Wonderful. Now, I know your journey a little bit better than the listener, um, but your journey into confessionalism and specifically Presbyterianism as you're an OPC pastor, how did you end up landing on the Westminster Confession as your confession? Was it because you became Presbyterian and so therefore you embraced Westminster, or was it that the Westminster Confession really just sized up where you fit and therefore you became Presbyterian? Um, the boat hit a wave and I fell off that side, um, <laughs> is really all it was. No, um, uh, was that it, the Baptist it, boat <laughs> wave, um, immersion wave? I'm it, trying to, all right. maybe something like that in God's providence. Um, it, uh, it just was the case that my, uh, movement more and more deeply into the reformed tradition, uh, came by way of, uh, so much that I was learning from those who were uh, Westminster Presbyterians, and I grew to greatly admire them as well as appreciate um, what they were doing and, and what they said about why they were doing it as well. And so a strong affection developed over time for the Westminster confessional tradition. And not long after I entered into Presbyterianism by way of church membership, um, uh, one of the uh, delightful things about that time was that I grew to appreciate as well other expressions of the Reformed tradition outside of the Westminster one and appreciated how complementary they are, how deep running the consonance is, the, the meaningfulness of the overlap that's there. And that's only increased over time. Um, I don't. It's not that I deny the significance of whatever differences there may, it may be as though they aren't meaningful or worthwhile. Um, but I really do... Um, look back on those years, those formative years of first encounters with Presbyterianism as something that took place not at the expense of appreciating what the Lord has done in the Reformed tradition outside that tradition, but as a way of the Lord putting me in a position to appreciate them for their distinctives, but also for the great contribution they continue to make to the Reformed tradition at large. I don't confuse the Westminster confessional tradition with the Reformed tradition as though it's the whole thing, and I think it's important not to. Uh, and at the same time, I do think in many ways it's a, a high watermark uh, of that tradition um, and that there's a great deal of still of enduring value in it. Could you give me maybe another uh, confession or a group of confessions that you're, um, you, you're greatly appreciate? Well, the Why? three forms of unity, to be sure, uh, in the Continental tradition. Um, uh, I, I really love the Heidelberg Catechism, um, and I... I don't think it's entirely accurate to call it uh, the anthropological, man-centered counterpart to the God-oriented Westminster Shorter Catechism. Sure, sure. That's an oversimplification. Um, they both have an interest in what is uh, reputed to be the concerns of the other. Uh, but it's a wonderful, wonderful, rich document uh, that is far more than uh, merely um, pedagogically useful. Um it's, it's profitable, it's fruitful, it's useful for shaping Christian faith and life uh, in a way that the, the Westminster Catechisms are as well, but in a different different fashion. Uh, so the three forms uh, easily come to mind as, as texts I greatly admire and deeply sympathetic with. And I also know that you teach on occasion, um, regular occasion, at an Anglican 
school as well. And so the 39 articles, I'm assuming you have some appreciation for them. Very much so, yes. Um, theologically and, and, uh, and probably in sentiment as well, I'm probably closest to uh, the Presbyterians at the Westminster Assembly who would be very easily confused with Reformed Anglicans since they were in fact almost indistinguishable in many respects. Um, and I do teach for a uh, Reformed Anglican seminary in town. I've taught one course for them, and I'm on their adjunct list, and we have a lot of fruitful uh, contact together. I have dear friends there as well. Um, 39 articles. Um, of course, this is what the Westminster Assembly uh, started its work with. Their first uh, commission was simply to revise them, work on them, um, and um, and use them as their as their template and base uh, quickly became something else, but not because the assembly somehow rejected them, but because their work shifted. Um, so I think for Presbyterians, especially for Westminster Presbyterians, the Thirty Nine Articles, for a lot of historical reasons as well as theological ones, should remain precious and highly valued. Sure, I recently uncovered the uh, Irish Articles, oh, yeah. which were in the Irish uh, uh, <laughs> perspective, an improvement upon the 39 articles in the sense of they're very more, they're much more Calvinistic. And of course, um, from my own uh, study, I discovered that many of the influences there from the Irish articles found their way to the development of the Westminster Confession. So, Yes, another very precious example of, uh, of a churchly creator confession that's wonderfully valuable and sympathetic and consonant with the best of the Reformed tradition, I think. Yeah. question I asked uh, a few of our previous guests is in um, R. Scott Clark's book, he talks about the importance of modern-day confessions and creeds. We've just listed uh, quite a few in our brief discussion already, but as you look through those, each of those had a very specific target audience because of the uh, crisis that they were facing, um, whether that was uh, Westminster there in England or the Irish Articles or um, Thomas Cronmer with uh, the 39, art 39 Articles. What is your thought on the importance of today the church speaking through a uh, new confessions and new creeds? I'm not crazy about the prospect of creating another confession of faith. Um, and uh, if I understand correctly, I think Scott Clark also is not thrilled about that idea. Is that right? I kind of got the impression that he was in favor of oh, he it was when I read his book. Yeah, that he, okay. he thought that, yeah, he thought the church should be okay. um, doing this. And if we could get the right, um, the right people assembled, it could actually be beneficial to the church. Okay, well, in that case, the reason I'd you be... change your vote now? Or? No, the no. vote the vote stands, but the reason for it might be uh, might be made clear. Um, getting the right people in place, I think that's actually part of the problem. I'm not sure that's a possibility, um, and that's the first of the two reasons I would be uh, I would not be terribly thrilled about such a project. Um, firstly, we don't have those kinds of people working in the church in sufficient numbers. Uh, who are able to do anything like, uh, in my view, anything like what has been accomplished uh, several times before in history with outstanding churchly confessions. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, part of it is the fracturing that has happened in uh, theological labor and, and the division of biblical studies and theology and history and so forth and the specialization that's come out of that. That's one reason for it. But the second significant concern I have is to do that kind of work, uh, and certainly at anything arriving at its scope, or by intention at least, by design, requires a kind of Catholicity of the Church which simply doesn't obtain right now. Mm. Um, whatever uh, document is produced, um, given the way the Church is, will be recognized by one or two or a few, but it will not serve in, in any way... Um, uh, the way that earlier documents have. And so um, our ambitions for it need to be greatly uh, humbled uh, into for, far more modest form about what that would look like. But let me add a, another consideration here. I think we're at a very exciting time um, in terms of scholarship. Uh, we have texts available to us um, and more easily uh, than ever before um, 
and uh, texts from the 17th century, but texts uh, far earlier than that and more recent ones as well. We have resources and tools. Um, we have advances in scholarship, not just in history, but in biblical studies in both Old and New Testaments and intertestamental Judaism. We have advances in theology itself on many fronts, um, advances in ethics. It's an amazingly exciting time to be working in the church and working in these areas. And we need time and people who can benefit uh, from these advances uh, in a way that um, is useful for the church. And that takes time. It takes patience and thought with this explosion of new material, specifically with a view to the Westminster Assembly. We have now the five-volume minutes and papers under Chad Van Dixorn's excellent leadership, and his work on that is invaluable. Uh, we have a number of other monographs of individuals at the assembly or connected with Westminster in one way or another or working during that period. And all of this work is uh, qualifying, at least, if not entirely displacing earlier um, assumptions about what was happening at the assembly and what some of its statements mean. And there's a sense in which uh, I think one reason for not going the route of creating a new confession is, frankly, I think we're only now in a position to start to understand the one we have, hmm. uh, to really understand it. I mean, not, not to understand it at all, but to really understand and appreciate what they were doing, how they did it, and why. And I think only after we've done that and really begin to appreciate the, the confessional tradition we do have, will we also be able to think more responsibly about what it would look like to be a Westminsterian Presbyterian church? Mm -hmm. um, I think that question has not yet been fully answered, and I think um, what is going on right now by excellent scholars doing excellent work and the materials we have at our disposal gives us a lot of encouragement that we can be far more responsible and careful in, as historians and theologians and as churches in relating ourselves to those documents than than we could have even half a generation ago. So it's an exciting time to ask the question and to pursue it. Great, great thoughts there. Kind of want to step into more your own personal development, um, kind of your own background and, and education. Mm -hmm. But before we get into that, maybe I just want to ask a couple of questions that my uh, listeners usually expect me to ask, which is, first, who's your favorite old dead guy that you love to read, uh, learn from, who would you say is up there on that list? Old dead guys? Old so dead young guys. dead guys the Young dead count. guys we don't want to know about. Just the old dead guys, yeah. Wow. Long, long Man, past. that's really, really difficult. Um, how many do I get? Or is you it just one? one? I get just one. one. Yeah. I get one. If you're nice to me, I might give you two. Really? Yeah. How nice? I can't <laughs> we'll refer. I can't, we'll see. We'll I can't see describe you. Yeah. I can't describe you over the podcast. Don't describe that's me. Right. I might scare away our listeners. Um, that is an impossibly difficult question, completely unfair uh, for you to ask without warning at least. So um, I greatly uh, admire uh, what Chrysostom or Chrysostom, depending on where you live, uh, what he uh, does in his homilies and how valuable and fruitful they have been for the church to read and to think about for a long time and knowing how edifying they are to me personally and what kind of role they have had for how I read the Bible. Um, he has to surge pretty close to the top of the list. Um, not that he's necessarily the theological influence on me, but um, as an example of a thoughtful, um, informed Christian, carefully reading through the text as a Christian for Christians. Those homilies are deeply rich uh, material, and I, they have been formative for me. Uh, theologically, I get another one, don't I? Oh, yeah, I'll give you one more. Uh, You've the been nice. Theologically, well, I'll, 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 um, I'll be a little unfair myself now. Um, I can't get over uh, the riches of Bovink's theology. Wow. But uh, when I say that, I want to include it, I want to include the Bovink stream as well. So this would include Cornelius Van Til. It would include others of the Dutch Reformed tradition, like Gerhardus Voss, um, and others who have worked since then uh, in a, in that general stream. But Bovink is um, I, I'm so thrilled. I think it's among the most important things that's happened in the last generation to have Bovink 
translated into English in full. Uh, it's an amazing resource for the church. And the more I read him, the more I'm glad I'm doing that. Let me ask you another question, and this one is more about a modern author. Okay. Which modern author or modern thinker really regularly punches you in the gut or in the face, depending on where it hurts more? Um, just in the sense of uh, chastising you maybe a little bit or getting in your getting in your uh, stuff to get you thinking a little bit deeper in ways you haven't thought before. David Bentley Hart. Okay. He's an Eastern Orthodox theologian. Um, depending on your perspective on writing, he's either the worst writer you've ever read <laughs> or the best writer you've ever read. Okay. Um, I can't. I read all of his all of his work, and obviously, I disagree with him on a number of things theologically. And yet, I read him because he is challenging. He is stimulating, uh, more stimulating than almost anyone else I read. Um, he's very thoughtful. He is uh, relentless in the pursuit of excellence in thinking. He is justly impatient with sloppy thinking, uh, which is something I think we desperately need to recover. We need to we need to become righteously impatient with sloppy thinking and sloppy writing, especially among our our friends and brethren, and call it that, wow. and, uh, yeah. and hold each other to a far higher standard than what seems to prevail these days. David Bentley Hart is righteously impatient with that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, he he also reads widely and deeply, and uh, I'm thankful uh, for him because he is a breath of fresh air um, as he brings the Christian faith and commitments uh, into, um, well, brings them to bear upon the questions humanity have always wrestled with. The big questions of philosophy, but also of literature and of the sciences. Um, and it's a reminder to me, as, a, as I hope it would be to others, uh, that as, as important and interesting as we think our internecine and tiny micro arguments and debates uh, are in our own head, in our own contexts, um, the faith and um, the work of the church has to keep in view the simple and major questions of life. And thankfully, that's one of the benefits of pastoral labor, hmm. is that the reality of sin in the world and love for people keeps a pastor honest about the things that matter, um, whereas losing a churchly context for theology can easily, uh, easily distract us from the things that actually matter. David Bentley Hart is an example of a very careful um writer, thoughtful theologian, um, who seems to know that the church should not be full of herself and mm. think that the questions the world has always asked somehow That's aren't, great, aren't yeah. important. Um, in your own journey, as you're describing um, Dr. Hart there and his yeah. writing, it, it kind of mirrors that because you, um, obviously, we've already said you went to Westminster and did your mm -hmm. um, PhD work. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I went to Westminster and did your um, undergraduate uh, studies, but then you went over to Edinburgh to do your uh, PhD work. Yes. But then coming back <clears throat> over to the states, you also served in um, an OPC church as a as as an uh, intern or resident pastoral intern. Pastoral for one intern. Year. That's right. Yeah. And which turned into two years. Yeah, I was there for two years. And then just because you wanted to make sure that as you're getting all this education and this scholarly aspect, you didn't lose the pastoral reality um, of what it was all to uh, hopefully achieve. Is that a good way to say that? It is. Um, from the outset, um, because of, of good friends who always had a good perspective uh, on, on this, and I'm grateful for them, uh, from the outset, um, my pursuit of PhD work, which was a, a wonderful gift from the Lord, uh, was never instead of service to the church. It was hopefully going to make me a more effective and faithful servant of the church. And so even um, making my way through the Ph.D. program and nearing its end, the question was never um, uh, an either-or, but how to combine my love for the church and service for the church with my love for the classroom and, and for research and for writing for scholarship. And I've always hoped um, that what seems to have been the case for so long in the history of the church might uh, be an opportunity I could uh, I could enjoy, and that is to do both in a seamless way, uh, to pastor or serve a church in some official capacity 
uh, in ministry, and yet at the same time, and perhaps even as an extension of that ministry, be productively active in teaching, especially, and in writing and publication scholarship. Your your pursuit of education has landed you in some uh, different places and some different opportunities. Uh, uh, Obviously, we've talked about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at Westminster uh, for your graduate work and then to Edinburgh, Scotland for your Ph.D. work. But you also spent some time at Cambridge where you uh, taught as well as wrote. And then um, you obviously taught at uh, Westminster. You've taught at the Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh. You've taught at RTS, at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, a few different campuses. Um, in all of that, how has this pastor-scholar aspect of you become evident to those you've been teaching, your students? How have you tried to make sure that was front and center? Hmm. Uh, thank you for asking. Just a quick uh, correction. Um, I did some teaching in Edinburgh as I was finishing oh. my PhD, but I didn't actually teach in Cambridge. Okay. I was a researcher okay. primarily. Okay. Um, but uh, how did I make my pastor-scholar uh, interest or orientation, how did I make that visible to the students? Um, well, um, I, I tried to learn from the example of professors I have had in the past um, from whom I got that same impression, that they, they loved the church and they loved the church as servants of the church in the classroom and training ministers. Um, and I've tried uh, in a very weak and um, uh, insufficient way, to be sure, uh, to emulate the best of what they've done, but do so as, as myself. Um, so depending on the context, um, I try to make very clear to the class I'm teaching um, the liturgical and uh, Christian life contexts for the topics that we're exploring. Um, uh, in the seminar parts of our courses, uh, try to tease out consequences uh, for Christian faith and life and for um, church ministry, as well as church worship of the things that we're exploring and discussing. Um, but the wonderful thing about theology and certainly it's rigorous study and and research and teaching. And certainly, uh, just as as much the case in biblical studies and ethics and the like, is that you don't have to justify the relevance of these topics um, if you do them justice. Um, In the very nature of the case, uh, you're dealing with the most practical, the most relevant things in all of the cosmos. Mm, Good point. And what needs to come through is that theology is not just useful when I can connect this fact to your life situation. Theology is practical and relevant because it speaks of our God. It has Mm. to do with our God, and it has to do with the truth of his word in which we are to walk and to live. And God himself is the relevance of theology. And it doesn't become relevant because I find some way to match it up with my experience. Our concern needs to be in the other direction. May my experience and my concerns and anxieties and pursuits find an appropriate place within what God has said about reality and about his purposes. And that's what theology helps us do. Know what that reality and God's purposes really are. A book I stumbled upon that actually you stumbled upon its author, um, <laughs> the Calvin's Company of Pastors, Pastoral Care and the Emerging Reformed Church between 1536 to 1609. <clears throat> that book has made an impact on me in just seeing the heart that hmm. uh, Calvin had for Geneva and for its pastors and the regular meeting um, to encourage one another, to equip one another, to keep each other on task, um, so to speak, and keep the theological uh, discussion at the heart of what they were doing. How has that um, book or that concept impacted what you're ultimately trying to do with your Greystone Institute? Oh, well... um... Thank you for calling it my Greystone Institute, but it's anything of the sort, I assure you. There's an amazing team of people leading this uh, important work. Um, I'm grateful to be to be part of that. Uh, Scott Manich is the author. He's just a wonderful human being. He's a humble, godly, joyful man. Uh, we met in God's Providence in Geneva uh, when I was there for a month-long research fellowship, and he was there at the same time 
also working in the archives and uh, at the Geneva Library, Reformation Library. Um, but he was there working on Beza and also working, uh, it appears, on this very material that ended up being in this book. And uh, we would meet a couple times, a few times, uh, in this open area, uh, garden, lawn area. And uh, he uh, he was there with his um, uh, his family. Uh, but we had some really uh, wonderful conversations, and I found him a, a wonderfully godly and, and stimulating man. Um, so when I, whenever I see a publication by Scott come out, I'm excited because I know the man behind the words, and he's a very careful scholar and a helpful one. And I think that's, that comes through in this particular book, which I would recommend to church sessions to read together uh, patiently over time. I'd recommend it to uh, classes in, in, in pastoral theology uh, as well as history. Uh, I think it's far more than historically interesting. Uh, I think it's uh, humbling and instructive as well. Um, what's interesting about the book um, is as it describes uh, the daily responsibilities and activities of pastors um, in the long period from Calvin's start in Geneva to about a century later, uh, you get this um, ironically encouraging sense that your full schedule and your full plate of responsibilities are not unique in the history of the church. In <laughs> fact, they that. are common to <laughs> common to clergy. Um, and that uh, the Lord uh, has been guiding his church uh, through full calendars and full plates and weak and humble and imperfect servants from generation to generation and has been guiding his church into all the truth. And during this time in history, it was a it was an amazing thing to see. The more we discover from the text of the period what it looked like, uh, we see stress, we see anxiety, we see conflict. We also see servants of the church getting together, uh, even after their ministerial training, so-called, is done, knowing the value of the fellowship in the task and thinking of theology and of the scriptures and of the work of the church. Um, so the company of pastors, the consortium idea, um, these are, you know, in its own time, they were the expressions of a kind of Catholicity among servants of the church, partnering together and thinking out loud together about what the Lord requires through his word, the most faithful way to articulate it, to understand it, and to do so with a view to the concrete realities on the ground ecclesiastically and congregationally. Um, there's a lot to learn from that um, because I think there's there are some things in there we would do well to to aim at and to recapture to some extent. Greystone has a vision that is precisely along these lines. It's it was prompted as an idea by the desire among um, seminary students, ministerial trainees, and interns, but also clergy and and many who had been in ministry for decades a longing for a context in which they could get together, learn what is happening in the world of theology, biblical studies, ethics, and so forth, keep current on it, sure, discuss it together, learn more, take intensive-type courses that are uh, at, a, at an advanced level to possibly train the scholars of the next generation of the church, but at the very least to um, to help facilitate and, and resource a theologically informed and shaped pastoral ministry in congregation after congregation. They wanted some kind of context for that. And when I'm teaching in seminaries in the area, when I'm finishing a class at the MDiv level, um, almost invariably at the end of that class, there's a group of students who clamor for more. They want more of this and at a higher level, but there's no option for them if there's no THM program perhaps close by. Right, right. Uh, and they're not sure about entering a full PhD program. And, or maybe it's not even because they have a, a, a degree in view, but they want the education, even if they don't necessarily need the degree and they want an opportunity for it. Uh, well, Greystone was formed to to meet to help meet that need as best as we can. We have an amazing group of lecturers, highly qualified, experienced lecturers uh, and scholars who also love the church and love what Greystone is after. And so we've constructed programs precisely to help meet that need. And um, it's a very rigorous program. Uh, it's kind of a no-nonsense boot camp for training theologically informed, exegetically skilled 
um, uh, theologians and biblical scholars uh, who can handle text and who can work with it in its original languages, not just the Hebrew and Greek, but certainly Latin to know the text of the tradition, but also German and French so we can read the best in scholarship out there and benefit from it to be more faithful and effective servants in the classroom and church. This is what we're after. And a lot of it has to do with what we've seen in the history of the church about what a pastor is supposed to be, what he's supposed to do, um, which is not that every pastor is supposed to be a scholar, hmm. uh, not at all. Uh, but every pastor should do his labor in a theological mode with theological sensibilities and should be able to handle the text and understand the issues of the text uh, in a responsible way, in an informed way that goes beyond uh, what we would justifiably expect of anybody in the pews. They need to be leaders of the congregation who do know more and can do more and are ministering out of that uh, pool of wisdom and training, which needs to continue to be filled. Uh, we need to move away. Greystone is, is helping, hoping to help us move away uh, from the notion of um, the pastor as professional. You get your training for a few years, much like a doctor. You go to you go to your um, get your degree, then you go through some kind of internship program. But then once you're finished with that, your training is done, and you just go do the work. Uh, or you go to law school, then you take the bar, then you're a lawyer for the rest of your life. The pastor, it isn't that. Um, seminary is not a professional polishing school or anything like that. Um, it is to give you the tools and to understand what the issues are and to begin to lead you into thinking carefully and responsibly about them, uh, basically to get your framework in place and uh, put you in position with, you know, having been planted in good soil, you know what the sunlight looks like, you know where the water comes from, but then the rest of your ministry needs to be capitalizing on that in greater and, in, and consistent growth from that. Uh, it's not the end. It's very, very much only the beginning of the pastor's formation, his experience, the work of the ministry, but his deep reading and the time that he needs to have for that and the priority that used to be, that's part of his shaping as well. We want to help help facilitate that. And we look around and we see that uh, seminary education as a whole has been in some camps uh, dismissed. Yeah. as unnecessary. Uh, the joke is that it's cemetery. <laughs> um, yep, yep. And then on the other hand, you have uh, <clears throat> places where the expectation is that everyone has higher degrees and is moving on to, as you said, sure. the scholar end of uh, the, the uh, uh, campaign. But when you look at this as a whole, what role does education play in the development of a pastor? You, you've alluded to it in many different ways, and, and you've kind of pictured it for us in the idea of the sunlight and the water and the ground. But maybe just give our listeners a few key things that, without education, they would miss out on this. What are those, what are those things that you would say are, are foundational, that, that education, seminary, um, those types of things bring? Well, with a view to seminaries and especially um, the training of ministers, um, we we need our seminaries. Uh, we need what seminaries uh, alone are providing, and some of them are doing it very well, and we need them to continue their work and to encourage them in that work. But they do what they do, not simple, or should not be, simply because they already exist and want to keep existing and have existed for a while and want to c continue to do so. But it, it should be rooted in all the way down into what the Apostle Paul's expectations are for Timothy and Titus, that they will attend to the Word, study the Word, and take great care to handle the Word carefully. Um, in its best form, uh, ministerial education, training, seminary, whatever approximation we have in front of us, that's why it's there is to help ministers be just that kind of careful handler of the word of truth. And the fact is, the Bible has a simple message. Um, and our understanding of the clarity and sufficiency of Scripture emphasizes that the Bible has a simple message. But simple isn't the same thing as easy. Mm. And the Bible is not always easy uh, to explain, to apply, to teach, and uh, we're talking about texts very old, 
um, where there is 2,000 years of uh, reflection and debate and discussion regarding its meaning. Um, and it would be the height of folly, as well as pride, uh, to pretend that we don't need every possible resource educationally uh, to satisfy what is part of our calling as ministers, and that's to handle the word carefully. It's not, as it might be in some profession, it's not simply so that we are better at it for its own sake or rise up the ranks of some church version of a corporation uh, or get promoted to a bigger church or a more desirable context or something like that. It's as simple as faithfulness to the Lord who has called us to this calling, to this office, and the urgency of rightly handling the word of truth uh, for the welfare of the sheep of the Good Shepherd. Mm. He is caring for his sheep. He is feeding his sheep uh, th- uh, ordinarily through the servants he has raised up to do just this, to focus their energies very simply on the word and prayer. And uh, perhaps part of the reason why we think less and less of the need for seminary training um, and and beyond perhaps is because we have become a little confused about the pastoral calling and have confused it too much with administrator, life coach, something else. Well, if that's what the pastorate is, even in large part, um, the urgency of a need for um, solid and careful training will seem less and less um, urgent, uh, will seem less and less uh, clear to us. What What could be some dangers that a young a uh, man who's contemplating <clears throat> seminary uh, but but feels called to be a pastor could face in that tension of um, if if seminary is good in, 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 in preparing him to handle the word well, hmm. are there dangers on the other side where he um, is is pursuing a scholarism to the point that he ceases to be a pastor or uh, to be an effective pastor. It's not just a possibility, it's a reality, unfortunately, for some ministers that they confuse their love for theology with love for the church hmm. and love for people, and that's not the same thing. Although loving people and loving the church does mean loving theology, loving theology doesn't mean loving the church, unfortunately. Um, at the same time, for those entering into seminary, I suppose one word of encouragement that I have given at times myself um, Uh, to students uh, is to take the long view and not the short view about what matters. And by taking the long view about what matters, uh, we can at least to some extent avoid the discouragement that comes with not seeing quickly what kind of concrete output um, is is involved or expected uh, from learning this or that thing. you know, learning Hebrew paradigms, I'm sorry, it's just not fun, at least not for most people. <laughs> it wasn't for me either. Um, but it is it is important, it is necessary, because it is part of a picture of not just knowing the Bible, but loving the Word of God and loving the people of God uh, so that you love the Word of God with them in view. That's why you learn your Hebrew paradigms. That's why you learn your... Greek syntax. That's why you learn uh, how Chronicles is related to Kings. That's why you learn the synoptic problem. It's not because these are uh, simply um, academic curiosities and matters of interest, although they are that, and they're worthy of study on their own. But for a seminarian, he needs to learn these things because they will help him handle the word more faithfully, and the people of God live by the word. So let's let's lead them into the green pastures of the word faithfully communicated and be confident that even with our weaknesses and the fact that we aren't great scholars necessarily and in most cases aren't great scholars, that what the Lord calls us to in Augustinian fashion, he gives. What he asks of us, he gives. He will be faithful um, even despite our brokenness and limitations in ministering his word to his people. What do, you, what do you say to the people that say, I went to seminary and it dried me up, it, it dried me out. Um, it, the word of God was no longer fresh and new. It just became processes. It became, uh, it became uh, coursework. And 
how do how does the young seminarian prevent that? I think the prophets had that same problem when some of their audience were dried up and calcified rather than softened and warmed by the word that God gave through them. Mm. Uh, we don't measure the value um, or the status or the quality of the word um, by whether or not it produces the desirable effect immediately. Um, there are any number of reasons why it it had that effect on that person, and they may have a lot more do to do with his or her heart than it did the academic context for their for their learning. Or it may be the seminary's problem. That's a real possibility as well. Or it may be that while they were going through seminary, they did so uh, in Lone Ranger fashion, not as part of a church community with pastoral encouragement, um, as part of a mode and life of prayer. But let's not neglect this possibility too that it may be God's blessing to them as it steered them away from something the Lord had not called them to. Wow, yeah, good point, good point. I know um, early on in my seminary um, time, I was handed the book, The Religious Life of Theological Students by B.B. Warfield. Oh, yes, yes. And that was very rich for me in mm-hmm. the sense of it just prepared me with the reality of what um, sure. what I was entering there. And so to the listeners, I would just commend that book as a... A good tool. When I started you. at Westminster, uh, that was given out for free to every incoming student wow. to read at the beginning. It was a great move, I thought. It is absolutely. Yeah. Let's turn the page a bit from the uh, from the seminary and the theological institution to the the institution of the church. Yes, and the struggle um, yeah. there that the daily pastor has, and maybe just some struggles you faced as you have rolled up your sleeves and ministered in the church that um, could be beneficial in the sense of the lessons you've learned um, as a pastor for well over nine years in your particular uh, Emmanuel Presbyterian Church. Uh, Thank you. Um, There's no question um, that pastoral Life and the pastoral calling is a calling uh, to bear the cross. And I think every seminary student would answer that question properly on an exam accurately. Is the pastoral calling a calling to bear the cross? Yes, of course it is. And have absolutely no idea what that could look like. And the fact is none of us do. None of us knows what that could look like. And I think I think one reason for frustration with seminaries on the part of some students who are in the ministry now, uh, when they say, it didn't prepare me for what I see in the church, um, is to expect the impossible. Seminaries simply cannot uh, anticipate every eventuality um, that uh, pastoral life can include. Instead, um, at the best, uh, it can give you a proper orientation and grounding for how to deal with what may come in God's providence and uh, what role Uh, the word and prayer has in sustaining a pastor through that. Um, In the last, um, oh dear, what are we looking at? Um, 10 plus years, almost, I guess, 14, 13 years of service in the church in one form or another, almost 15, I suppose. Um, I've had the opportunity to to talk, and more and more frequently uh, lately, of course, to talk uh, with those involved in pastoral ministry and I especially value conversations with pastors who've been doing this for decades, uh, who may be considered in their last third or fourth or fifth of their entire uh, service to the church, who are nearing the end of their ministry. I especially value their perspective on things. In fact, uh, the Greystone Conversations series will be a series of interviews with pastors or other churchmen and teachers who are in that place in life and who can offer counsel to those who are younger. Um, but what I value about their perspective on things um, is that it's it's encouraging um, to see two things uh, consistently come out. One, one is that they, they experience things in the course of their ministry they never would have expected, um, and that having to work through them Uh, reconfigured them very often in one way or another in terms of their priorities, their vision for what a faithful ministry looked like, what mattered to them. Sometimes their view changed on a particular question because their circumstances forced them to study it intensively in a way they never would have otherwise. 
And so they find their view changed on that topic as a result. I find that fascinating and encouraging. Uh, It reminds us that the Lord in his good providence uh, is not only leading the congregation through this time of trial and difficulty to shape them, but the pastor as well is being shaped and formed by the Holy Spirit and forced to think through things and do things that he never would have wanted to do otherwise. And um, I found that true in my own experience, um, Mm. that our own hardships at Emmanuel and and what I and others have gone through has sensitized us to issues that we always valued but didn't see quite as clearly until we had to. And it's reconfigured in many ways my own orientation to ministry and simplified it. The other thing I really take away from these conversations is uh, another encouragement that there's no such thing as uh, a ministry with ease. There is no easy ministry. And if there is, you're doing it the wrong way. Right, right. Um, and all faithful or all ministries endeavoring to be faithful, uh, all pastoral ministries um, are stories of hardship. Now, we should expect that of the Christian life generally, yeah. um, and so especially of the pastoral calling, but it, there's something encouraging in being told, yeah, I've been there too, and so has every pastor I have known in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, in Second Corinthians, Paul's a thorn in the flesh. I mean, yeah. he want, he's begging for it to be removed, and yet uh, God keeps reminding him, my grace is sufficient for thee. And as you move through that in your own pastoral work, that becomes that passage of scripture becomes more yes. and more afresh in yes. our own lives. Right. Um, right. Can you think of various times where um, where that thorn in the flesh for you has actually produced um, uh, s- sanctification or, or something in the sense of its end result that you've looked back on and go, "Wow, you know"? Can you give some Can you give some handles to that? What you've been describing? <laughs> um, uh, I. I hesitate very strongly to be uh, to, in terms of being able to point to times my sanctification was advanced I'm I'm only too aware of times it went, went backwards and instead wife and ask her she... <laughs> oh she'd have so much to say um, but but of course I, I hope and pray that at least to some extent that's been the case I, I can say that um, my my understanding uh, of of the gospel and of God's word and of God's people, and of what it looks like to love them and serve them well, un, uh, without question, was forced into a new new clarity by having to face hard, hard questions um, about uh, sin. And uh, sin, uh, that is a very, very destructive thing. And where if you don't, as a church as a session, as a pastor, um, to bring the gospel to bear upon it, uh, people will be destroyed. Um, it's a solemn, solemn position to be in and, and to know your inadequacies. And um, so in a variety of ways, I've, I've seen in the course of pastoral ministry in um, Two different congregations, uh, as well as being uh, an advisor to others and counsel to other pastors. So with a view to all these congregations and situations in view, um, hard questions concerning uh, spousal abuse, the nature of spousal abuse, what qualifies as it, best way to address it, uh, sin among professing Christians who are hardened in that sin and um, only grow harder uh, in it. Um, issues of gossip, of slander, um, uh, the, the proper uses of church power and the limitations of it, um, the, the urgency uh, of um, uh, shepherding those who really are vulnerable sheep and in need of it, uh, listening to the voices of those who are so easily overlooked and ignored and crying for help, uh, complications, difficult questions when it comes to um, uh, the uh, uh, side effects of um, um, very strong medications upon certain Christians. Uh, you know, imagine a scenario where someone uh, is on uh, a very strong uh, psych- psychological medication, uh, psychopharmacology. Uh, you know, uh, having a number number of examples of drugs that 
have lots of side effects. Imagine a professing Christian who comes to you and is um, sure that he or she is in a grave spiritual crisis, is is uh, wrestling with great sin, uh, perhaps even being abandoned by the Lord or abandoning the Lord himself or herself, and um, then learning uh, that he or she has suddenly stopped taking that medication. And when you do a little bit of research, you you know what you read what the side effects are for getting off of it too quickly, and they look just like what you're hearing. Well, then how do you interpret what you're hearing from that person? Mm. Uh, does it affect the way you process what they're saying? They are sure is happening as a Christian. You know, they haven't had faith crises like this before, but now they're suddenly having one. Well, there are a lot of red flags that go up, right? And a lot of things that uh, we need to account for and think through. They're, they're difficult questions. Um, so hardship in ministry, hard things that you see, hard things that you experience, they invariably um, change the way you think you have to serve the particular congregation you are serving faithfully. And I think that's one of the valuable things a seminary can communicate or a, an institute can communicate, and that is you need to do full justice to the reality on the ground in front of you rather than constantly and only work with generalities you think apply everywhere. Mm. Love the people in front of you, which means you have to know them, and then you have to pray and think and labor with a view to them. As a pastor, has there been a more um, particular section of the Westminster Confession that you've clung to um, for encouragement or for uh, just direction? Um, I I don't know why I feel compelled to ask that, but in the light of our conversation, I just feel like that's something that's been uh, on my heart here is that as a confessional guy that says, hey, I, I had hold of this, and this has been a rich section for me and hmm. as a pastor, um, particularly. As a pastor, wow. Um, I find the larger catechism, actually, okay. wonderfully useful pastorally. Um and, and the Confession and Shorter as well, the Shorter Catechism too. Uh, what, what the Westminster documents say about the fatherly displeasure of God for someone who continues in sin, mm. that's, a, that's a very important thing to, to hear, that there is such a thing, and that it remains fatherly, um, and that the sense of distance created by our persistence in sin is ironically a good thing for us to have a hard time with. Um, expressions like that in the Westminster documents I find pastorally very, very useful and helpful. What it says about uh, adoption, uh, particularly uh, the way it explains union with Christ in relationship to the benefits of justification, sanctification, and adoption, Um, the moving ways it encourages uh, us about uh, our justification, our security in Jesus Christ because of Christ our high priest, um, there isn't any one place in the confession or catechisms um, uh, that I go to often, but in different ways at different times, this or that part is pastorally meaningful and helpful. Uh, what, it, what the larger catechism has to say about um, the heinousness of sin and how um, they are darker and darker by degree when you account for a variety of extenuating circumstances, uh, that's an important thing for pastors to to think about. Uh, it means that when they look at this or that specific action or sin that's been done, um, there are a variety of contextual things to think about before reaching a conclusion on what that action actually means. Um, that's a that's pastoral wisdom at work, I think, mm-hmm. by the Assembly, and it's reflected in the ethical moral theology tradition uh, before the Westminster Assembly, Perkins and Ames and some others. Um, but it's a it's a moment of I think great pastoral wisdom when it explains that. Wonderful. Well, we've really enjoyed our time with you, and mm. I uh, just uh, am so thankful a for our friendship that's being renewed as we speak. Yes, indeed. Um, our days at Clearwater Christian College, which uh, no longer is in existence. That's um, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They've been looking for the next Aaron Carr for a long yeah, time. Yeah, they yeah. just gave up the hunt. So, yeah. All be- always before them was the great Marcusia, <laughs> and they uh, were looking for a flawed car. I guess. Oh, no. Um, no, no, no. I just really enjoy our time together. And um, the the thoughts that you've brought, and uh, the the heart of 
truly the the pastor theologian is something that really stirs in me and hopefully for my listeners and the the importance that theology has on being a good pastor, a good shepherd, a good leader, not just in the church, but in the home. So thank you for our time. Thank you very much for having me. And just for the... I'm sorry, just for the benefit of our hearers, how can they get a hold of you or find out more about the Greystone Institute or if they have just uh, they want to pray for you particularly or there are things they can be praying for. So go ahead and yes, thank you for that. Yeah. What Greystone needs to continue its work and to accomplish its its mission and serving the church and the academy in this way is uh, the prayers of, uh, of God's people who, who want this kind of thing to happen. And certainly uh, the support uh, financially and, and in other ways for the Institute is, is critically important for this. And we're very grateful for those who have enthusiastically rallied uh, around the formation of the Institute and are eager to see it uh, uh, progress. Um, you can reach me at m.garcia, G-A-R-C-I-A, at graystoneinstitute.org or uh, magarcia338 at gmail.com. The Greystone Institute uh, has its own website, uh, greystoneinstitute.org, as does Emmanuel, where I serve as pastor. Uh, If you're ever in in the area of the west side of Pittsburgh uh, and looking for a a loving and warm congregation uh, with a very imperfect uh, pastor, Uh, Emmanuel Presbyterian uh, would love to have you. And we're on the west side of Pittsburgh, emmanuelopcpgh.org. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.